Hello and welcome to the Space Cave, a big warg to all of you. My name is David Huntsberger. I'm a stand-up comedian. I have several albums online. You can find them anywhere you find stand-up comedy. And there's a new one called Big Nothingness. You can listen to everywhere you can find stand-up comedy, but you can also see a visual version on YouTube and or Vimeo. You can get to both via davidhuntsberger.com. But if you press play, you're likely here because you want to hear part two of a great chat with Meg Elison, and here it is. Uh, we left off talking about, which I think was like such a perfect, we kind of covered your story, but then went through, like now you've you've been published right after you leave Berkeley, mm-hmm. and then you mentioned the Iowa method. I know a little bit about the MFA program there, that that's kind of like a a holy ground for creative writing, this kind of method of I think that learning that, like, and then you mentioned the weekly book club, and I think that kind of ties in to maybe kind of, if not the main, well, it's certainly a sub-theme, I think, in the book, which is the midwife is always trying to gauge who's kind, who has kind of gone the way of, which comes from maybe sort of a practical or realistic point of view, but also could be looked at as kind of cynical that, like, humans at their base or at their nature, given to their own desires, will be atrocious just you know horrible horrible creatures and things like a writing group where everyone probably wants that maybe not the castle in the new york times bestseller longest running list but being published or getting it made into a movie and you might be reading it going this is absolute garbage and (laughs) you can't say that to them so then you have to summon the best version of yourself that isn't lying, that is being constructive and helpful and kind, but it might come through some filters that are like, I don't say it's garbage. That's mean. And that's maybe it's the most honest, but what can I say that is helpful? You know, humans can always feel that. What do you think? I thought it shows great promise. And you're like, oh, (laughs) like, but that's a nice thing to have that group where you're all trying to be the best for each other. You really, you do have to try to be kind because it is a very easy space to hurt each other's feelings. Showing people, I always say showing people your work is like sending out your own unstaged, poorly lit nudes and asking <laughs> for feedback. Yeah. It is that vulnerable and it is that personal. So showing other people your work takes guts and courage and not every writer wants to do it or can do it. And you have to approach everybody who shows you their work with that kind of compassion. Like they are showing me how bad they can look naked and I'm going to help them look better. Mm -hmm. So you address yourself to what can be changed, what can be better. And very specifically, not, I didn't like this, but I love the character and I hate his voice. Mm -hmm. Or I think the pacing of this is right, but not enough happens. Or I love the ending, but it took you a long time to get going. And that is its own set of skills that you have to develop as a writer, if you want to be part of a writing community. Oh, that. I always advise new writers who ask me, like, what should I do? I I tell them, start a writing group. Get just a couple of your friends together. Get people who are ambitious, who are on track, who are responsible enough to show up with work and to show up with crit and get it going. It is the best thing I've done for my career. Yeah. And are you still a part of one? Yeah, we still do. Oh, you said that. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, I read, uh, I don't consider myself a writer, but I just think it's a good book, the Stephen King's On Writing. On Writing is a great book, uh, both because it'll teach you about turning what happens to you into good art, and also because it'll teach you what it used to be like to make $400,000 for your first <laughs> fucking book in 1970 fucking four. Let me tell you how that's not even possible anymore. 
Is it is there something about I think I have this conversation outside the podcast from time to time in that people get down on uh, music used to be harder to get into. And I, in stand up, an open mic that had like 20 people would have been crazy not when I started. And then this was after, well after the nineties comedy boom where the, so the, the people that hung around through that would go, Oh, you think you're in the sweet spot now? And I'd feel like it's still pretty popular right now. And they go, it, it was so much worse in the nineties. And then all of a sudden there was this explosion. And now I would guess an open mic would maybe have 50 plus people. Mm -hmm. And so these golden age things of it was so much better then. But in music was the gatekeepers, the tastemakers. You had to get in through these gates of Capitol Records and so on. And if they said no, you just weren't a musician making money. (sighs) There was no like real alternative indie way to go do it. And then people, and these are the groups that I'm most fascinated by that said, okay, this person wants to be a musician, but they don't want to practice and they don't know an instrument and they hate writing. But if you, if I made a little machine that I could put in front of them, they could just kind of plunk things and sing into a mic and do playback. They could probably create something good. And yeah. then those people did. And suddenly the number of people outside Capitol Records went from 10 to 10,000. Right. And everyone's going, oh, it's so much more challenging now. Did that happen with writing? Like, why is it more proliferated now by writers? Or is it? So we have experienced in the last like 100 years. So there's an explosion of global marketplaces that happens all the time. You see it around the time of the Industrial Revolution. Or you see it around the time of the um, the shipping revolution. You know, suddenly it becomes possible to ship goods from India to England. And that changes the market and say, you know, your job is selling meat pies in England and all of a sudden people have spices. I'm sure it feels very unfair. (laughs) (laughs) So the same thing happens with the explosion of the global marketplace in goods. So think about the difference between being able to get literally everything you need from Amazon delivered in two days versus how it used to be. And that, you know, drowns out mom and pop stores. It kills off Ace Hardware, whatever the case may be. Unfair, but this is the way the world wobbles. The exact same thing has happened in publishing. They're the big five, as we call it, or what may become the big four if they allow the merger, uh, used to own almost the entire marketplace with all of their imprints and all of their subdivisions. And now there are a lot more publishers than there used to be. There are more books published now than at any other time in human history. There are more people reading books now than at any other time in human history. There are more literate people now by pop by percentage of the population and also by sheer numbers than at any other time in human history we have more opportunities and devices for reading than we ever have Mm -hmm. so you don't have to you don't have to own the book you don't have to go to the bookstore you don't have to know anything about books (laughs) you can make a 99 cent excellent bodice ripper about a woman who has sex with velociraptors appear on your phone for a dollar (laughs) it is a great time to be a reader yeah it's also a great time to be a writer there are more methods and paths to becoming a writer than there ever has been i tend to think it is a good thing when accessibility of the arts becomes democratized when more people can make art and more people can find the art that they're looking for the weird stuff the niche stuff the velociraptor sex stuff I'm glad it's all out there, but it can feel really daunting as a writer when there used to be, you know, say 40 new books in uh, in your six month period. And now there are 40 new books being published on the day yours launches, Yeah, many of which in your genre, similar to yours, edging you out. It's hard to get noticed. It's hard to get heard. It takes more work than it ever has. And that work disproportionately falls on you as the individual because publishing houses do not spend the money on you, even if they do have it. So it is easy to be a frustrated writer now, much easier than it is to be a famous one. We also, we've kind of democratized the concept of fame. Like there used to be a very clear delineation between people who are famous and people who are not. And now you have sort of a middle category where, you know, Hank Green, who has several hundred thousand followers on Twitter, possibly a million and a big internet presence. And he's never been on TV and he's never been in a movie and he's not a professional athlete. And a huge number of people would say, who the hell is Hank Green? And a lot of other folks would be like, how do you not know who Hank Green is? Mm -hmm. Or we have people who are famous on Vine or people who are famous on TikTok or someone who became a meme. The idea of fame has shifted considerably in the human psyche. And, you know, with 8 billion people on Earth, 
it is perfectly reasonable that less than 1% would ever know your name. There's Beyonce famous, and then there's, you know, John Scalzi, million dollar contract, big time bestseller, unstoppable juggernaut author, but stop 10 people on the street and they'll say, who the hell is John Scalzi? Yeah. The market is bigger and the possibility of fame is smaller. So I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's easier or harder. I don't know that it's unfair to decry the circumstances of the century into which you were born. This is our time. This is what it's like. Sink or swim, baby. <laughs> That's sort of, and funny to like these, sink or swim is such like a, like it's a, it's an aggressive thought that we're swimming around and it's kind of like sharks eating each other. And, mm-hmm. but just sink or swim, just being kind of like, just just swim you know not not that you have to eat other people in the water but just right. swim everyone just kind of fastest you don't yeah. have to swim like with the sharks you don't have to eat anybody on the way just keep moving mm-hmm. swim in your own way at your own pace we will have a good time the more of these things that become available to it become i feel like the person that did design the technology for the the beatbox or whatever you would call it the person could make music simplistically on like is, the, the synthesizer, like the, something to that effect, yeah. Like or yeah. or just like a little beat pad or or a yeah. you know anything that kind of like yeah. a loop pedal, something that allows oh yeah, yeah. like it's someone that's great with like a loop and just simple like mouth sound effects or a guitar. Or, we've we've made it so open to be endlessly creative that it almost feels like the world wants just that. Stop yeah. looking at each other as this person belongs on this pedestal and you're just a bus driver. Everyone is valuable. Your stories matter. There's music in you. There's something that you have to share. One of the most profound things I learned in community college was from my anthropology teacher. He was teaching physical anthropology. And that's the class where you learn the difference between monkeys and apes and between humans and the rest of the apes. And this teacher uh, was pretty revolutionary in many ways. And he asked us to define what makes humans different. And in almost every instance, the things that people pointed out are things that other apes do. People said, uh, tool use. And he's like, nope, here are five examples of other apes using tools. And people said, well, speech. And he's like, here are examples of specific speech, not even among apes, but among other simians, like traceable, like this call means bird, this call means snake. Mm-hmm. People said symbolic behavior. And you know, he showed us elephants mourning their own dead like all of these things are human but not uniquely human so he challenged us again and again to find the thing that was uniquely human and we very quickly readjusted our understanding of our place in the universe we are not unique except in one regard humans are the only life form that makes art Hmm. you can prompt another animal to make art you can give them the tools and convince you know a chimp to paint yeah but a chimp will not paint on his own mm-hmm. a human given nothing and no encouragement a human with no idea of what they're doing or why will paint the walls of a cave yeah so i think i think that everybody makes art i think whether you mean to or not people are out here making baking beautiful pies and you know, braiding ribbons into their kids' hair and spending way too much time wording an email so that it'll be fun. (laughs) We make art. It's what we're meant to do. It is the only thing that is uniquely ours. And it's silly to think that only some of us are capable. We're all capable. The art's going to be weird. Yeah. But we're all doing it. I like it. Yeah, we, uh, at one point on a previous podcast uh, that I did, we were discussing art and a, a concept came up that like, women's place in it had just been differently regarded because a lot of the things that women traditionally had done had just not been regarded as art. Like some of the things you just mentioned, you know, like making a beautiful pie or garments or... I've seen uh, examples in museums of people trying to reevaluate fiber arts as women's art forms because it was the kind of thing they were allowed to do. But if you look at like the complicated geometric patterning of quilting... Or the, yeah. the extreme intricacy of crochet and knitting or, uh, you know, even clothing designs over the years. Those are pure art forms. They are distinct and skilled crafts and also the expression of art. And we only devalue them because they're necessities and because women produce them. But those are absolutely forms of art. Yeah, the I mean, I think we all know people that do something that they consider like 
this is just industrious. This has to be right. done. And like, but the way you do it, like, look at how, like, when you Our pour fun. your concrete, you make sure that the top looks just like this. That's very artistic the way you do it. I've seen it a million times in the skilled trades when I look at the way that people uh, work out the adhesive and grout for tile or welding. Mm-hmm. There are such skilled welders in the world who are, cap- who are capable of creating smooth, fluid joints between pieces of metal. Like that is craft. And I don't want to take anything away from the skill, but it, it's art. It takes an eye. Absolutely. And a, and a, any welder will come along and like feel a bead. And if it's like a perfect braid, they'll be like. There's pleasure. Yeah. It pleasure. Absolutely. I love watching welders admire each other's work and just see the incredible smoothness that they can create and, and just stand back in awe of one another. It's it's one of the strangest subreddits I've ever fallen into is welders looking at each other's <laughs> work, but it also, it fills my heart watching them do it. They are, they are creating aesthetic pleasure for one another and for those of us who care to maybe be a voyeur here and there. Yeah. I, the only time I left a couple of weeks ago and prior to that, the only time I traveled was after the vaccines, but still like a nerve wracking period during the pandemic. Yeah. And some friends and I went to Washington. We were kind of like, we we're a couple hours east of Seattle. Mm-hmm. It's just out in the wilderness. And we're by this lake and all the trucks have welded grills and bumpers. Oh man, that's so cool. And some of them were a little, the time we live in, it felt a little like, ugh. <laughs> let's be everyone just be relaxed here at this lake let's not start Everybody just be cool. yeah. yeah just be don't run your mouth just be quiet here and then one of the trucks i was walking by i was feeling the bead on the bumper and i was looking at like the angles and the way that it was designed to really flow with the pickup truck and it was all jacked yeah. up and then i go around to the back and there's all these bumper stickers about conservation and kindness is my religion And I was like, we're missing that. That just doesn't get displayed enough that we associate one thing, the trade and inartistic stuff with this other rigid, more like unimaginative human, you know, and in reality, they go together. Yeah, it's much messier than you think. Mm-hmm. Like the the number of of common rustic folk who do not think of themselves as fancy, who are creating great art and also believe passionately in the necessity of stewardship of the land, is uh, bigger than you might think. Yeah, well, yeah especially I people love- who are like hunting it; they need the land to be healthy. You know, so right. they're like, oh, I drive my big truck out there and then we go hunt for big orange sheep. I don't want to see a plastic water bottle. Ugh. Right. They're picking up litter while they go hunting or they're they're hauling dead growth out of the forest to prevent fires or. Yeah, mm. no, I'm, I'm very pleased those folks are out there doing what they do. You're uh, the mid and I don't want to keep I don't want to refer to it as your book because you've written like 55, 65 books. So <laughs> <laughs> since we've been recording, you've written two books. <laughs> I've been I've been very productive. I like to work, uh, but I, I have several in the chamber that haven't been published yet, and my sixth will be out in 2022. Amazing. I love it. And that's the biggest thing in um, Stephen King's uh, on writing is just write. To write is to write is to write. And then going back to the music-making thing, if you're a musician and you're like, yeah, we haven't gotten the studio space, we can't get together, and our whole thing is to like feel this energy and write 11 songs and create an album, someone else is like, I wrote 11 songs today, this afternoon. Yeah. And yeah. so then it, where does it, you know, you can have all these different views on like what's art and what's just being churned out. And because it's subjective, the person writing 11 songs a day, maybe they get really good at it because they are practicing and they're really flexing that muscle and using it. I know people have a suspicion against writers who produce too quickly, but I do love to remind people that Dolly Parton wrote Jolene and I will always love you in a single day. Wow. Sometimes it just happens when it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I like to produce quickly and edit at leisure when a, a work does not feel fresh to me anymore. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to live forever. I got a lot of <laughs> books to write. I got shit to do. I'm working on a list here. That's how uh, Ray Bradbury was. Your book jacket said like I, she writes like she's running out of time. And I think that was his thing. It's just like, I have too many ideas. I, I don't think I'm going to get them all done in my and lifetime. No, yeah. he didn't. Yeah, that's such a bummer. But also great that, like, what a catalog. Yeah. No, he, he did as much as he could. He took a big swing at it. The uh, the feeling of going for So you're, you're, the midwife touches on a number of things in that, like, to some degree, when there's no people, 
you get just the right mix in my mind of if you've ever been hungry, you know how that feels to be like daydreaming about stuff and and walking along with cold feet and just thinking, oh, if I could just find somewhere kind of warm and man, if there was some food there, that'd be great. And then on the other side, this is so great. There's no people around. <laughs> so like this feeling of wanting warmth. And I don't, you briefly touched on it, but you know, your parents being out of your life. And I imagine that's a very emotional thing to revisit, to think about, to, it seems like it would represent itself in that way, just in the smallest way that, you know, this need for love and warmth and also like, I'm fine. I don't, I'm okay out here. Yeah. It definitely, it grows out of that for me. And it also grows out of, uh, I, I am ashamed to have discovered during the pandemic that I'm an extrovert. But I also, I have a real need for alone time. I, I think I mistook myself for an introvert for so long because I, I do seek out time alone fairly often. It just turns out that I get a great deal of my social energy from being out among the people. God, that was rough for the last two years. <laughs> but I also think that that's just one of the the essential conflicts about being a person is that you we really need to be around other people. Like there's study after study after study that proves that we fall apart in isolation. And then being around other people makes us feel crazy. So I loved putting the midwife with people who she was desperate to get closer to and desperate to know, and then making them just really annoying (laughs) or boring or difficult to live with. I hate it, especially in movies, this happens a lot. People find each other and we're in love, we're a family, we would die for each other. I don't think that would happen most of the time. I think if you ended up in a ride or die zombie cult with the people who just happened to be on your train this morning, most of them you couldn't fucking stand. Yeah. So I, I wanted to have that conflict going on constantly. Like you need people and also people are the worst. The thing that I would like to see happen on that train though is people with preconceived biases or prejudices, they they would leave there going, I hate totally different people now. Has nothing to do with their jewelry, <laughs> their tattoos, their sexual orientation. I hate Tony because he sucks as a person. Yeah, and then everyone would go, oh, we all hate Tony. <laughs> and that's such a, that whole thing about humanity, I think is that play in the book as well as, you know, just because you're together or just because someone is kind or just because you're excited to see another woman because you haven't seen that many women and like oh no this woman is bad though (laughs) (laughs) that happens yeah i thought you and you're kind of challenged maybe you know coming you're in college and you're writing you're just writing characters and five years ago maybe it was different the lens that it's looked through like how did you portray were you too hard on this you know type of person were you too easygoing or I find that now if a woman says something to the effect of like men can be shitty, there's a, there's someone jumping up, not everyone, not all of them. And you throughout the book, you do, you, you create more at least like, I don't want to say likable, but defensible men. There are equally as many women that you're like, that's, that's a rough character. That's not a perfect person there. And, yeah. and it comes out where like, there are some truly awful men in the story so it felt like you wanted to get your claws out and just be like, to hell with all of ya. But over time, yeah. it doesn't come off like that because there, you would you would say that's the main drive. If you're on the road, that's dead ahead. But yeah. off to the side are like all these really endearing um, – there's a word I'm looking for. They have Anyway, there's a – there are just there – there are aspects to men that you really – it almost feels like – I guess the question I'm asking is, did you feel the need to do that or was that necessary? I did want to write the kind of men that I have known in my life. So I wanted to be as realistic as possible and acknowledge that in situations where men feel powerless, they often act out around those around them. And that's, you know, I have a friend who was assaulted at the the Superdome during uh, Katrina and it wasn't that you know, it, those things aren't related, except that they are like men who are in a refugee situation will often assault the women in their refugee camp because there is no other way to obtain power. So I wanted that to be real. I wanted that to play it out in a way that we've all seen it play out. And also I wanted to write about the kind of men that I've known who can be 
responsible and tender and feckless and helpless and caring and paranoid and you know everything that a person can be and i i really thought about the kind of men that i've known specifically in san francisco i wanted to write men who've led a very tech forward existence uh who all of a sudden have their basic life skills challenged because they don't know how to obtain safe food for themselves or row a boat or <laughs> i was gonna say like this guy shows up he's like I, I wrote code for google and she's like i'll see you later and that's like yeah. that really develops it's <laughs> so like it's just so smart on her part to like you're gonna weigh me down dude but also like you get to know her very that, that's a hard decision for anyone hard to decision. be sitting there she like she does she does feel bad about it like she does reflect and be like man that guy's <laughs> gonna have a hard time if he has a time at all yeah but, but she knows better than to take on the burden of mm-hmm. someone who was made for another world that's the term i was looking for was redeeming qualities so ah, off, yes. off to the side would be redeeming qual- and that doesn't make someone a good person it just means they have some characteristics something about them that doesn't make them a total shit so that yeah. guy and i love this throughout like every interaction okay he's a helpless facebook dork yeah that doesn't mean he's not gonna like tase her or do something when her back's turned oh. So yeah, we don't know agree. that guy. Oh, he seems sweet. And then something's in her drink or, you know, there were things yeah. there like throughout this little tension yeah. that felt very like, I'm sure there are men that could write that, but it felt very like women know that experience. They know that Wait. kind of like, Hey, we're hanging out, having fun. Everything's fine. I'm definitely not like kind of worried right now. Yeah. Now, I, I know way too many women who've been raped by a guy who seemed sweet and helpless and was a friend of hers and was a nerd and was a leftist and you'd never see it coming. So yeah, I, I, I live with that reality up against my skin every day and I had to write it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I mean, I don't know that I can think of something that had that feel so over and over to me where like, oh, they're, they're going into this dark building together and hey, 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 why is she looking there? Turn, look over your shoulder. I just wanted to be like, look out! And then... <laughs> <laughs> I am glad to hear that was effective. Totally. Yeah, it was a really... I, you know, when you watch... And it's not a horror book at all, but in horror movies, well, the, you know, just a little bit of... Even if there's no music, just the way that it's shot where... And we all know that, like, refrigerator scene... Right. But sometimes they'll do the thing where the refrigerator opens and then closes and no one's standing there. It's there, yeah. It's just it's just building tension. Yeah. That feel. I actually I deeply love horror. I read a lot of horror. I'm very influenced by it. I have a Stephen King tattoo. Oh, cool. <laughs> That's his thing? What is that? Uh, this is from the gunslinger. It's Ka is a wheel. Ah, okay. Yeah. That's the one they tried to do with um Matthew McConaughey. Idris Elba. Yeah. McConaughey. Such a nightmare. <laughs> But I learned about building and releasing tension from being a horror reader. And I learned about the nature of fear and how easy it is to install it in everyday things. So while Midwife is not a work of horror, I did plenty to scare the reader. And I'm, I'm very interested. And I've, I've published some horror stories. I've been in Fangoria and Nightmare. And I, I really want to push further into that genre in the rest of my career. Yeah, I, I'm wondering if... If there are the, I mean, who can you, we think, so we think of like the jacked up truck guy as a, you know, not going to be great for, or or like a, an archetypal tough guy, toxic masculinity, likely to get too drunk and do something. And that's not at all the, who to be worried about solo. Oh, only worry about that person and no one else. No, like it's, it's usually someone you know, and it's usually someone you wouldn't expect it from. And it's not, it's, you know, not a loud redneck and it's not a stranger in the bushes. It's uh, someone insecure, someone in a lot of pain who has access to you. Mm-hmm. That's when it happens. Do you hear from people that have suffered those traumas and, you know, the characters that you come across and or, you know we meet in the book, we get to know them they're met with situations that are incomprehensible. And one woman does just walk off and we don't really see her again. And we kind of I almost hope that she's just called it quits because yeah. being in a situation that is so like, this is life. This is, I'm really alive right now. And this is life. I just have to keep doing this. Yeah. 
uh, I do get letters from survivors fairly often um, because they saw themselves in the work or because uh, they want to ask me about me or they want to, to share something about them. And I've been very grateful for it every time. I also, I get a lot of letters from queer people and from trans people about their inclusion in my work and how I chose to portray those worlds and to include it in my science fiction. And I've been humbled beyond measure that my books have helped anybody understand or or see things. I, I One of my best fan letters of all time was I got a letter from a lady in her 80s uh, who read one of my books and who has a non-binary grandkid. And she said that she didn't know what to do with that and didn't know how to use the language or what it meant or how to understand it. And that my, my book helped her get there, that she could, uh, it was just the most humbling, incredible thing. That's so great. Yeah. Yeah. So I deeply appreciate every single reader who takes the time to reach out to me. I always answer my fan mail and, um, and those have been some of the best, both the survivors and just the, the queers who see themselves in the book. Uh, it has changed my life to read the way that people are radically vulnerable with me because my art reached them. And I, I hope that never stops. I have bad news. You're going to oh, yeah. run out of time for that eventually. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the bad news, right? Yeah. When you're in the castle, and I mean, three books on the way, that means this is only going to, there's going to be a tipping point to where it's no longer uh, paying rent and feeling lucky. It's, I have this, I have this signing, I have this appearance, I have this to do, and I have to find time to write. Yeah. You're going to have to cut some stuff out of that schedule. And unfortunately, those fans, they, they're going to get marginalized. And that's okay. Like, they have this early entry point now. They can get in. There's time. Yeah, so that behooves I hope that people. there are one day lots of people who, you know, have a story about me. Like, I, I wrote to her website, you know, like 10 years ago when she was just starting out, and she was so nice. And there's a there's this uh, Neil Gaiman speech that he delivered at the graduation of an art institute a couple of years ago called the Make Good Art. Have you seen that? I've probably seen it referenced because that sounds very familiar to me. It's it's highly influential to me. I used to listen to it over and over. It's about how difficult it is to make art and be a human. And one of the things that he says is as you become more successful, you know, artists are always throwing messages and bottles out in the water and most of them don't come back. Most of them, you get nothing, not even a little encouragement. And as you get a larger profile and you get more well-known, all of them start coming back <laughs> and you have to say no to things. And it's really difficult to know what to say no to. And it's agonizing to say no at all in an industry where you have to be as accessible as possible. And he says he got to the point where he realized that he became a person who professionally replied to email and wrote as a hobby. <laughs> and he had to stop doing that because, of course, you do. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to have those things planned out and prepared for, too, because in, inevitably yeah. you're going to run into something that you're not prepared for right. and have to reassess and step back and like, am I still writing from this place? You know, the love of it, is that all it is? Is it just this little glowing ball that's love of writing? Or is there like a lot factored into that ball that you can see almost like little hot spots on the sun pop out of like? Yeah, there are sunspots for sure. I do have a love of writing and I, every time I read a book, I, I love writing more and I have stuff in the book. I'm like, I want to do that. I want to do better than that. I want to argue with that. I want to follow in their footsteps. Like there, it always motivates me. And then there are things about the world that I wish were different, that I have something to say. So each one of those things is a fire, is a little sunspot, keeping it hot, keeping it moving. Um, I love being a writer. I love this being my job and it being the thing that I'm known for. And I want to keep that going. That's just a little hydrogen core. Of, <laughs> I like being this person. Let's keep being this person. And there are the rewards that come down the line. You know, there are royalty checks and there is fan mail and there's getting to go to bookstores and read to people and sign is getting to go to conventions. I love conventions. I'm so excited that conventions are coming back. <laughs> and there are the yearly awards, which I've been very lucky this year. I got nominated for damn near everything in 2020. And that's enormously wow. motivating. Yeah. Uh, the Nebula, Locust, Sturgeon, Hugo. I'm missing something. I don't know. It's been a hell of a year. That's a, yeah. I mean that those are all like uh, the flip the switches going on on the rocket ship 
Corey, check, you know, just like flip them all on. So, so any fans listening, thinking of writing fan mail, do it now. You, What Absolutely. more signs can you need that you're <laughs> going to get lost in Santa's bag here pretty soon? Write the letter now. <laughs> That's the you said in there. I like being this person. I like being a person. You know, you're you're at a, your toughest point, which I'm sure you can look back to and see very clearly. And oh, yeah. that person in that point, as a human, probably had some moments of I don't like being this person. Maybe I don't even want to keep being a person. And or, you know, how, how dark does it get to then now like? to every day be thankful, to every day be positive, to be like, this is so rad. And in the book, The Woman Who Wanders Off, that's a dark spot that I don't think anyone could wander back from. And yet, we're all tasked with like, well, how much strength do you have? Is that what it is? Is it just the strength to go, this is hell, but I'll bet if I keep pushing on, I'll be getting fan mail and nominated for all these awards and things will be going well. Does it feel like that's, I mean, that's pretty dramatic, hers, to that but does it feel somewhat similar uh I, I would say i would never uh describe somebody who had to end their own life as weak it's not a lack of strength it's not a lack of resolve it's not a a fault in your character at all it's it's just something that happens on a bad day uh and it's it's mostly i think a question of access mm-hmm. um you know, there are all these statistics that prove that you're much more likely to kill yourself if there's a gun in the house because it's a single decision you can make quickly and you can't take back. Yeah. Um, in the darkest moments of my life, you know, when I was a homeless teenager with uh, no roots and no future and nowhere to go, I certainly thought about it. I certainly asked, do I have to keep being a person? Do I have to do this every day? And I, I desperately hoped that the things I have now would be ahead. It was the life that I wanted. But the difference between there and here, it's a series of leaps that you can't predict and you don't know how to make and no one will show you how to make. Uh, So believing that those things are possible certainly helps, but it's not necessarily the only thing. Uh, I think one of the biggest differences is being able to ask for help. That is a thing that keeps people alive and keeps people going. And I have been fortunate to receive help every time that I have asked for it. And many times when I haven't, because people were willing to care for me or put me up or let me shower or feed me or help me pay for college or, and lacking that is not a personal failure. It's just a thing that happens to some people. And I had to write that in my book because in a a dismal world where there is so much to fight over and so little to win, I think a lot of people would opt out and I would completely understand it. Yeah. I, I, what you first started off saying too, like ties directly back to that, that no one's really faulting anyone. You know, there's, I think we, especially as we get older, this kind of feeling that, yeah, it, uh, you could just stay there like chained to the wall the whole time. We hear a lot of the stories of people that broke those chains and are now like flying down rainbows, but it does, it doesn't, no matter how hard you try, you might stay chained to that wall. Yeah. And so it's just a matter of kind of saying, I, I can live with that. That's okay. The view's yeah. good. Or I like the people here next to me or whatever little gratefulnesses things you can be grateful for you know those are but it's so much better when you hear about the rainbow slide so hearing you like achieve all these things i mean that's the best i'm really glad i mean it definitely encourages me but i i hope that anybody who sees themselves in me or better yet because i always think this works anybody who reads my book and says gosh i'm better than that good (laughs) let that be your reason to do it show me do you what made me write if you were to look now, you know, so your first book gets on an awards list and then now your your book in 2020, f- four or five awards, uh, would you say you're noticeably a better writer or would you say, you you know, you're, you're attacking subjects differently and or you're editing better? What would you say? Or is it just because people know you now that you've been around a little more? It's both. Uh, people are more accepting of your work when they know your voice when they know what to expect, when they had a good time last time and believe they will again, that's definitely a thing. And also I am noticeably a better writer. 
I have a, a great deal of compassion for the Meg who wrote Midwife. I'm still proud of her. I'm still impressed with what she did. And there are moments in that book where I'm like, damn, baby, you wrote that. <laughs> and also, it's so different from the voice I have now. It's so unfinished and unfiltered that I very rarely go back and read Midwife unless somebody asks for it. But the last time I did a live reading from Midwife, I really had to sit with it because I wanted to fix it so bad. <laughs> there are a million things I could have done better. I don't regret it at all. I wouldn't change it at all. It gave me the start of my career and everything that's come since. But I'm a massively better writer than I was when I wrote Midwife. And that's that's just by virtue of doing it. Every time you write a book, you you molt off a skin yeah. as a writer. And what's underneath it is softer and newer and more colorful. Just just keep molting. Just keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I It would be hard for me to... I'd have to like see you read some of it and then hear you talk about like, oh, here's what I would change. Because a large part of it is written as a journal in the midst mm -hmm. of a chaotic scenario. So it has this beat-like quality of... You know, but da but da but da da da. On we go, and it almost feels like in doing that, there's there'd probably be a bit of freedom that like I just need to kind of get the the beats across. I don't. It doesn't have to be eloquent, really. Later, when there's exposition, it you know certainly is writing, but that that would to me, if I were writing, I would feel like I'd found a cheat code or something. Like, oh sweet, I can do this and like move the story along as fast as I want. I love epistolary for that reason. I love being able to move the story along in a series of beats that come in a character's voice. And you can do that in letters, or you can do it in diaries, or you can do it in dialogue. And I loved that her voice is so clinical and so clipped. And uh, she does record details, but briefly, because she's used to, you know, giving report as a nurse. It is kind of a cheat. <laughs> it is a way to breeze through the major parts of a story, but it's also a way to keep you very close to a, a close third main character. So, you know, for stylistic and, and uh, technical reasons, I think it's effective. I wouldn't change the way that I wrote The Midwife. I like both the style and technique that I chose for that. And I think I took some risks and I was proud of those risks at the time. And I still am. I mostly see things that I would change in the exposition and the, the delivery of the third person narration of the book. And that's only because my style is better now than mm -hmm. it was then. The voice though, that you, you know, you mentioned, like, would that ever factor in if you say, and sometimes these things come about when, you are dealing with a fan letter or someone at a signing and they tell you a compliment, but you go, wait, what? Meaning that like, say they love the midwife because she doesn't pull any punches and she's always sizing up men. And she's like, she, she messes them up. Like she doesn't take shit off of anybody. And she's like, and they're like, I see that. Like, I, and then maybe you write a book later and it's a totally different book, but it's right. your voice. And people are like, this character kind of deferred a little bit or, you know, was too demure in these situations and now are you going to write a third book? Like I'm back. This <laughs> like right, <laughs> like just punching out people just to appease that one voice, or does that ever not at all enter in? There are a couple things to tell you about that. Uh, the first is that you cannot write the book people tell you to write. It is a fool's errand. You will destroy yourself. Mm -hmm. You can't write to the market. You can't write to the trend. You can only write the book that's in you. The book that you desperately need to write and taking people's feedback like that is very dangerous for your art you have to set it aside you have to write for yourself did There's you know no that way. straight away or did you make a couple errors thank the gods i knew that straight away <laughs> i had a slight crisis of confidence when i was writing my second book because i was aware that people were watching <laughs> and I, I really had to work myself through it i really had to just accept that people were watching that they had expectations that they had desires and that it could not matter to me. It mm -hmm. is not allowed to matter. The second thing is that... <laughs> oh, God, I lost it. I lost it. So my thing was the uh, first book and then a, like a person... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Looks like you found it. Second thing is that 40% of what happens in a book, roughly, happens between the ears of the reader. You may or may not have meant it, but they saw it. 
It's because reading a book is a cooperative experience where you are projecting your values, your expectations, your uh, your previous history as a reader, your desires into it. So a lot of times people will see something in a book that you did not intend to put there. They put it there. Mm-hmm. They just don't know that. They think you're a magician. <laughs> so whenever a reader says, I love that you did this in this book, whether or not you intended to do so, unless it's you know wildly off base and possibly dangerous, just say, yes, I did that on purpose. You're welcome. Oh, you found that. <laughs> you found that. Exactly. I, of course I did that intentionally. I'm so glad that you read it that way. Thank you. Because the you cannot account for the person who comes to your book and what they expect. Like when you mentioned your apprehension of whether or not I was capable of writing gay characters and like, was I just trying to be cool with people from San Francisco or did I actually know what I was talking about? That apprehension made you have a better reading experience because you got to feel the relief of me writing what I knew. Mm-hmm. People will do that because they expect the plot to go a certain way or they expect the writer to be bad at something because of who they are or they just read a book that's like this but worse and your book gets to be the bomb and be better. Mm -hmm. You can't control any of that. That's all stuff that they brought with them to the party. Yeah. So you just have to accept it. You have to accept that like half of the book is not your work. It's the brain that's reading it and move on. Yeah. And you have to be – does that – I mean – you know, doing stand-up, you get immediate reactions. There are certain people that like an, oh, a groan or whatever. The fe- but it's it's different than you know. It, it, some comedians would even you know jokingly say, "Oh, I'm kind of a sociopath," or you know, "Oh, yeah, I, I like that. that." And then you're like, "You aren't really," because you're responding to it. To yeah. to not respond, you have to just send this thing out and and go about your day. Like, okay, I sent in my book, and now I'm. Headed over here to the park or whatever I'm doing. You can't just sit there and wait. What are they saying? What? How are people responding? I'm gonna beam me in on everyone's reading experience. Let me watch all of them. You can't. It's you unnerving can't. at first, definitely, to do that. You have to just accept that people are reading your book and they may never tell you, and you may never know. It is much more satisfying to write short stories and essays for the internet because then the internet will react. It's what it does. <laughs> Good, bad, or indifferent, you'll see it play out. So I get a little hit of that when I need it. And uh, I get long-term hits on books because authors have to be very patient. You write a book and then you edit a book and then you submit it and then they edit it again. And then they add it to the publication calendar. And the whole process takes like three years. Uh, I was lucky with my first book because my publisher was so small. It happened really quickly, but for the most part, it does not. The the soonest you're going to see any movement on something you've written is like a year from now. So you have to accept that by the time people have feedback about your book, by the time you see reviews and Kirkus or ALA Booklist or, or any of that, you're working on something else. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> healthy though, right? It, I think it really helps and it's very healthy to have that kind of distance. So when people start commenting on your book, finally, you're like, oh yeah, I wrote that like three years ago. I felt really good about it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. But it doesn't feel raw and new like you just produced it. So that that weight is agonizing and that weight is very good for you as a person. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would guess that getting published so quickly that like, here, I'm done. It's March. And then by June, they're on shelves would be bad because they would say, oh, no, she's gotten to that level where she doesn't need an editor anymore. And now she, right. she kind of does. Like, Right. The so process I, is good for you. And mm-hmm. the edits that I've received from all of my publishers so far have been masterful. There are people who look specifically at continuity. There are people who look specifically at chapter length, like you should break it here instead of here. There are people who look at copy editing errors and they have eyes like eagles and they make you sound a lot smarter. <laughs> I, I owe a debt of gratitude to every editor who's ever touched one of my books. They make me look loads better. They clean up all kinds of things that you just, you miss it. Your agent misses it. Your editor misses it. Like this is a specialized job for a reason. I, I owe almost as much to cover designers who take a really complex series of ideas and images and represent it on a book cover, which is no easy feat and is a whole other art form. Uh, the cover art for my young adult book, Find Layla, is one of my favorites of all time because I feel like the, uh, the artist really got it and produced something unique and suited and something I never could have imagined myself. That's so cool. The synergy of... You know, your your work kind of uh, invoked or brought that out of them. You know, like yeah. There's the, a word for that in Greek uh, when art inspires you to make other art. It's called ekphrasis. Ooh, I like that. 
So like, you know, you hear a story about Jason and the Minotaur and you're like, I'm going to paint this shit on a vase. <laughs> I love that. It's one of my favorite things about being an artist. And the cool thing about being an author is that there is a community of people who work on your work. So you get a cover art and you get uh, an audiobook, and then you get cover art in another language and, uh, and you get promotional materials. And each of those pieces comes together around your Jason and the Minotaur story. And it's so cool to see it proliferate. You know, people think of a book as the work of a single person and the opposite is true. It's a team of, you know, sometimes 50 people mm-hmm. work on bringing a book into being. And I, I deeply appreciate the work of all of those people. Yeah, you're, you're doing the largest share of the work certainly definitely the the lion's share of it is is yours but the the efforts to polish and perfect it are extremely important yeah i like when people are deferential to like credit and stuff but it would be weird to be at like a um a reading to hear the author go and when we were working on this part we're just so thankfully (laughs) (laughs) we Very few opportunities to say we, although yeah. I know a, a lot of authors work quite closely with their agents to develop their new ideas. And I do not have that kind of agent. I do. I have an agent who is great at making deals and good at her job and stays out of the creative process. So when I say I, I mean I. Yeah. You're writing stuff. And I want to, I'll start putting the wheels down. I, I don't want to keep you here all night. You've been very gracious with your time. Um, you're writing style. Is there is there something that that's just in your DNA? Like I I found it in the midwife. You know there there wasn't a lot of wasted effort. I like that. It's just the story moves along. There's no need for like getting carried away with. I don't know what you would call it, but it it was there a lot of that in the editing, or does it like you kind of start at that place of like well, that doesn't need to be said. Only this does. That is my style. I tend to be succinct. I am an underwriter. So most authors will tell you the the book comes in 10 to 20% over and you cut down. Mine comes in 10 to 20% under and I have to fill in what is not obvious to the reader. Ah. So I come in very bare bones and I I want to be, as Hemingway says, spare and true. Uh, That was was the writer I was going to say. Yeah. uh, You were the most like that I could think of. And I wouldn't consider myself that well read. I think I used to be, but I've had a... Uh, uh, the last decade I just haven't and your book brought me back into like I, rem- I remembered how great it was feeling where you like any free moment you got to just like sneak away to a book and mm-hmm. but yeah there's a very Hemingway element to the just let the words do the work you know I like that I have a complicated relationship to Hemingway I think as any feminist would <laughs> yeah. but at Berkeley particularly in my last year when I was focusing on American novels I got obsessed with him I could not free myself from the incredible economy of his prose and the repetitive, almost hypnotic nature of his dialogue. And what I saw as this is another one of those moments, like great crystalline moments in a life, but I had a fantastic professor of American lit named Ron Lewinson, who was professor emeritus when I had him and uh, passed away not long after. And he was a great teacher of profound and deep knowledge of American novels, particularly of the 20th century, and ultimately of Hemingway. And I came to him in office hours and I asked him, like, explain to me the difference between reportage and what he does here. Like, how does he make it into art? Because I wanted to do it so bad and I didn't understand it. And he really helped me. Professor Lewinson was very generous with his time and excellent to me. But most of all, when I was reading The Sun Also Rises, which is a great book, even still, it occurred yeah, to when me. I, when I meet people, and I'm not the biggest Hemingway fan, but that book is undeniably great. It's so good. It's and if so people great. are like, oh, I, I didn't like For Whom the Bell Tolls, like, you started with the wrong book. You yeah, should... you, you started in the wrong place. That's all the problem is. Yeah. So in The Sun Also Rises, the main character has Hemingway's characteristic um, injury is that he is in some way impotent. Hemingway loves doing this to his protagonists. And he's in love with this woman, Brett. And Brett is, uh, she cuts her hair short, which is an interesting uh, gender signifier, especially for the time. And then she leaves our castrated protagonist to start fucking a 19-year-old bullfighter. Hmm. And I was reading this and I got very curious and I asked Professor Lewinson in class, I was like, so it's 1920, they haven't invented the pill yet. 
Brett is clearly a woman of freedom and means and does what she wants, and she's fucking a 19-year-old bullfighter, are we supposed to believe, are we meant to read as the, the audience that she is infertile? Is she written as barren? He just sort of blinked at me like an owl, and he was like, what? <laughs> I was like, you know, the main character is, you know, impotent or castrated or injured in this way, and, and you know, is she, is she his foil? Is she also incapable of having children? And he's like, I've literally never thought about it. And for a person who has taught that book for longer than I've been alive, <laughs> I thought that was an astonishing moment. Yeah. And it, it was because Hemingway's writing is so deeply misogynist and our culture of reading it is so deeply misogynist. And the fact that all women at all times are concerned with whether or not they're going to get pregnant in this moment, it's never mentioned. It doesn't come up. He had no idea. He had no theory. That was one of the pivotal moments that led me to write Midwife. Like, you remember that thing that no male author is talking about? Almost no male author is talking about. You remember that thing that happens to almost all humans at some point? You remember how you were all of woman born? <sighs> I was obsessed with that for a long time. I could not understand why someone who had created, he made his entire living analyzing books like the sun also rises and he'd never thought about it i wonder if you revisited him now he's probably teaching a, a lecture that's devoted s solely to that moment i i very much wish but professor lewinson died i think two years after i graduated oh dang it i'm actually i'm one of the footnotes in his wikipedia page I'm oh very, that's great very proud uh I, I wrote about him when i was working for the paper there and it's, it's noted that's so cool yeah. Um, okay. I will. I will leave you with this question. I haven't asked it in a while, and I forgot. And there was an episode recently. Where I was like, "Oh, dang it! That was a good guest to ask this too." Which is, there is a button that when you push it, all of humans disappear from planet Earth. They go wherever they go. They feel no pain, but they are just gone. So everything else remains. Just humans disappear. Would you push that button? No. Interesting. I, I you were you were someone to me like sometimes I'll ask him like I know how this is gonna go, but you were like a fifty fifty to me. <laughs> <laughs> as much as I despair, as much as I I think that we act against our own best interests as a species over and over and over, I remain hopeful, Did and that... I remain I, I remain moved by some of the things that we can do by what we're capable of when we're good at it. So. I would keep doing it as much as it sucks. I would keep doing it every day. <laughs> I like it. I, and now that I think about it, it ties totally into, I mean, your, your life has been one of like great character, the spirit to keep going, to push through uh, and, and be in a position where that has, in my mind, been well rewarded and is just, again, the rocket ship just about to take off. So that could like tinge the, that decision that like well why yeah, would I'm, i i'm, I'm, I'm predisposed to be an optimist <laughs> but some people be like yeah i guess i wouldn't push it we can maybe pull through this and then where's the difference between that and then like hell yeah we can pull this together we can figure out climate change we can be good to each other you know i i think there's a going from primates and becoming humans and being in our more tribal state as a species it seems like maybe we were better to each other it seems like it wasn't, I guess we'll never fully know, but. Yeah, we'll never really know. And, you know, any, any ideal state that people imagine that humans had in, in the past is for the most part undesirable to me. I'm not interested in living in a past with no birth control. <laughs> right. And, and I, I do not idealize any part of our historic past where I know that luxury or advancement for a few was purchased at the expense of slavery for many others. Uh the truth is the best days for us are always ahead. We'll have to revisit this. Maybe we can make a deal when you are in a castle to yeah. come back and talk about, I want to hear about your ideas as a science fiction author toward this better world where we are more educated and it sucks to be tracked and have all of our data sold all day, but we also maybe have fewer serial killers currently. Right. And so, maybe we know ourselves better because of it. Maybe it's a trade. Yeah. Yeah. No, I would love to do that. And you have my email and, and we should talk again sometime. That sounds great. 
Well, Meg Elison, make sure you say it correctly when you see her at a book signing. Although if you're there, you, you already know. Uh, mm-hmm. And then what's the name of the new book coming out in 2022? 2022, the book is called Number One Fan from Mira Books. Cool. Well, I am excited about it. And I'm going to try to catch up on the whole catalog because I really did enjoy the Unnamed Midwife. And thanks again to Gene Hospod. And thanks for spending your evening chatting Thank in the space cave. It's been great. You've been very kind. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation because I certainly did. I'll be keeping an eye on Meg Elison going forward. I hope she just continues writing and writing and writing. And I hope you get on board and read at least one of the books. It was really enjoyable. And thanks again to Gene for setting that up. You can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash space cave. A lot of behind the scenes things, bonus episodes, extended chats. Uh, there might be a whole episode of just Dan's musical choices because he wrote me after I made fun of him last time as he was sending along the finalized edited episode for the next one. He said, do a full show of my picks, of my song picks. Let the fans decide, all caps and fans. Let like They like, all caps, fun vibes, Dave. So maybe that's true, but I don't think I'll do it as a, a regular episode. That just seems too risky. And it's very poppy music. So maybe if you like pop, sign up for the Patreon. Perhaps you'll hear a whole episode, an hour of Dan's musical choices. You can dance to it, I assure you that. And that sounds like I'm being too negative toward him. I like his music. We've used a number of his songs on here. I just like to give him a hard time because sometimes it is really poppy. Anyway, we'll keep the music uh, hopefully fitting the feel of this environment here in the cave. And then thank you for visiting it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Follow Meg, follow Jean, follow Dan, follow your dreams. Good luck out there. This is a song by Sunflower Bean. It's called Baby Don't Cry. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave. It's playing sad, sad songs.